Amen. And so here is Matthew uh, 9. Um, Jesus goes on, and he is actually in the midst of answering a question. If you remember from last week, they come to him and say, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus is in the midst of answering that question, why his disciples don't fast. It's a wonderful answer because he's changing the tune. He's making a new song. He is the one that we fast for. They found him. Why should we stop eating? Now it is a celebration. They are with Jesus. They are with the Messiah. And so in the midst of answering that question, verse 18, it says, while, they were, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself in her own conscience, this is how she reasoned, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. In Mark and the other Gospels, it says, your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And when the crowd had been put outside, so he actually physically removes them outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. So Jesus privately wants to do this miracle with actually as little people seeing it as possible. There's a place in the book of Kings where Elijah goes into a room and there's a small boy who is brought back to life by his prayer. But it actually says exactly in the text that when he went in there, this prophet of old in Kings, he shut the door behind him and then he prayed that the boy would come to life. It's a very similar thing here. Jesus is not looking to draw a crowd, but he is looking to address these problems. And so he moves everyone out of the way. And as, once they're all gone, he goes and addresses this one young girl who apparently is only sleeping, it seems. But maybe not. So the story here has to do with some similarities and differences. There's one young girl, and then there is one old, older woman. One of them is dead. One of them is in the process of dying. One has been bleeding for 12 years. One reaches out to touch Jesus. The other one, Jesus reaches out to touch her. Interesting. They're two women, they're the same. They're both unclean. That is, they are separated from society. They are associated with death. Now, for the point of this story, think of yourself. Do you ever feel alone, friendless, loveless, forgotten? Do you feel ostracized or separated from God or other people? Yes, this is the common occurrence in our life. The beauty of the gospel here for Jesus 
is to know that he sees that, he knows that, and he addresses that immediately. He's in the middle of a conversation, people come to him with these needs, and he immediately moves to act upon them. And he sets aside any distractions, flute players, and the commotion of the like of the crowd to make this happen because he actually cares that much for those who are separated, those who are distanced. Jesus cares that way, but he's the Messiah. Now here's a beautiful reality of finding the mission of the Messiah, that this is our business too. That if we claim to be followers of Jesus, who cares for these types of people who are so removed and on the edges, then therefore us following his mission, the mission of the Messiah, we need each other. There's a reason Jesus Christ made a church. That sometimes you need to be on the receiving end. You actually need people to lend a hand to you. You need people to socialize with you, love you, serve you, give you things. That's the beauty of the church, just to have that option. And the reverse, likewise, goes the other way. That we need each other because we need to give. It is better to give than to receive. Now you think, I wouldn't really want to be part of a church because then I have to get my life all intertwined with a bunch of people and it could get really weird and awkward or messy and just more, more demands on my time and they want me to volunteer and do stuff. And Well, that'd be the only, the only way that wouldn't work out is if it wasn't better to give than to receive. But since it is better to give than to receive, this is the best place to be. This is the mission of Jesus Christ. You are, in, you are sitting right now in a prime position to actually have more than ever could be given to you if you were to give. For it is better to give than to receive. And here's Jesus modeling that, demonstrating that with his unique power and abilities that sometimes are given to us through prayer but not in a normalizing effect that we see in every page of the Gospels. Here, these two women are separated. The symbolic reality of how God gave the Jewish people this symbol of separation is that anything, and if you wonder, when you go back into the old, anything associated with uncleanness or separation and all these ceremonies, it has to do with reality. It is not just hocus pocus, right? Every symbol was a symbol of separation that had to do with one thing, death. Death and life. So in Numbers 19, the law clearly says, Numbers 19.11, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Now it's not as though they were superstitiously ancient people thinking, well don't touch that because you'll get... Um, voodoo or some type of bad omen upon your life. It was symbolic. God was teaching them through symbol that this is bad, therefore seven days away because you touched a dead body. Death is not normal. Death is not right. Death is wrong. Don't ever think because all of us die that it should be normalized. God wrote into his law to make sure that you never ever dare approach the idea to think this is normal. Because if you think death is normal, you'll think sin is normal. If you think sin is normal, you'll become a humanist. And become a humanist, you'll be a fool. And God doesn't want you to be a fool. Even though we all die, it's not normal. Because sin is not normal. And so, the degrees of separation are also there. 
It's not as though just touching the dead body makes you unclean. It goes on to say, anyone who is in the tent with the dead body is unclean. Or any vessel or jar or something that was open in the perimeter of the dead body is unclean. So it's unclean by second or third degree. There's going to be hopefully a very clever analogy of all this if you hold on. Hopefully. I mean, I can't promise, but I think it's okay. Degrees of separation also fall with this. The association of death, not just death itself. So, Leviticus 15, if a woman is bleeding, she's unclean. But there's nothing immoral of that. It's natural. It's a monthly thing. But it's the symbol. The symbol that you are dying. You are in the process of dying. And even though this is a natural biological reality that does the one thing in creation closest to God that not men or anyone can approach is that a woman gives life, creates life, the honor and dignity to that, that the only one who even comes close to being like God that way is the woman. But yet she does that through blood and even the the brutalization of her own body an eventual cycle that that will lead to her own death. So that blood associated with death, therefore even in that context, this woman is unclean. So you have Leviticus 15, you have Numbers 19, dead body, woman bleeding, and these are exactly the two women that come to Jesus. A little girl who is dead, a dead body, and a woman, an older woman who is bleeding. It's like a Mr. Yuck sticker. So, underneath the sink, behind the locked doors, there's a bunch of chemicals with green stickers all over them. And that doesn't mean that those chemicals are evil. But for certain people, immature people, they need to know it could be bad for you. Don't go there. This is what it is for God. It is unclean. Doesn't mean that giving birth is unclean. Doesn't mean that if you touch a dead body, you're a sinner. It's a symbol to say, it's not right for you to think this is for you. It's not right for you to think death is yours. I wouldn't want Lily to go grab the Clorox. And God would not want any of us to touch death and think that that's for us. He wants none to die, but all to come in life with his son. So therefore, he makes these arbitrary, granted they're arbitrary rules, to teach that this is not normal. And so maybe you ever heard of the phrase, um, six degrees from Kevin Bacon. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's interesting. It really is. Um, Six degrees of separation is really what people talk about. Now, in this basketball camp from the previous week, it was cool. There was a friend, and he was texting, and he knew um, a guy named Luke, and he said, hey, Luke's here. And then he texted another guy, and he said, well, I'm here too. And it was a three-way group of friends that didn't even know any of them were all in the same building. Interesting. It's a small world. It's interconnectedness, right? And then obviously, um, as I'm just walking around getting to talk to people, you talk to so-and-so, you talk to this person, and they say, oh, I did this and I did that. And you're like, oh, you know so-and-so. And usually there's always like a second degree. It's like, I mean, in this area, we're here now. You know, you did this, I did this. I don't know you, and you don't know me, but we both know third person. 
That's a first degree separation, you could say. What's really neat, in 1929, uh, Frigis uh, Carinthi, a Hungarian novelist, wrote a very short uh, story called uh, Chain Links. It's 1929, that is, a while ago. And in there, these um, interlocutors or characters are debating and talking about how they could think through a scenario in which there are only five people removed from anybody in the whole world. And that's in 1929. And that was just a thought experiment. It's just a novel. But it gave rise to this discussion. How interconnected really are we as people? And at one point in the novel, he did say, again, 1929, he said the world is getting smaller. And at that time, there are only a little over a billion people in the whole world. And he said, but the reason it's getting smaller is because he did this experiment. Imagine Caesar, Julius Caesar. He would never have the possibility to speak with some Aztec priest in the Americas. Because they didn't even know it existed. The world's a lot smaller in 1929. Obviously, it's even smaller now. So this kind of thinking went further and further till. 1994, some college kids invented a game, and it is that game, The Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And they almost, I, I remember watching an interview uh, with Kevin Bacon where he thought this was going to ruin his career. He was like, I'm going to be associated with this silly six degree uh, game, and my whole acting career will just be forgotten, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, but they made a website. If you uh, actually have a lot of time, oraclesofbacon.org, try it out. They had a database of a million or plus actors or actresses, and they put it all together, and they were doing some type of study to see if you type in Kevin Bacon and any other actor in the world, it's usually always one or two actors removed because the acting community is so uh, close that anyone would be closely associated with Kevin Bacon. Well, of course, naturally, based on how people have been thinking about this, sociologists, mathematicians got to work, and they really do say that it's six Roughly six, and maybe now five, because of what's happened through social media and Facebook. That you are only at most six, but most likely five people removed from everybody that's walking the earth right now. And that just, if you think about that long enough, that can blow your mind. That's amazing. So that means that you would be six degrees different from the 7 plus, 7.8, almost 8 billion people in the world, that you're only six handshakes away from knowing the president, pretty easy, probably a few shakes away from knowing the president. I mean, John Curry knows someone who knows Mike Pence, so I mean, like, that's like two, you know, so, I mean, it's pretty easy, Mike Pence happens to spend some time with Trump in the past four years, but, like, it, that's how it works, right, you see the connection, but you're even six, now that's famous people are easy. You're six handshakes away from some rice farmer in Indonesia that you're never going to see. But the connections would be there that you would have to know somebody to know somebody, just six. See, both stories here with Jesus, they're trying to close that gap. This man is coming and he's a ruler, we're told, a ruler of the synagogue. He's a Jewish man. Mark 5 says he's the ruler of a synagogue. Matthew just says he's a ruler. But he knows about all these clean and unclean laws. If anyone knows, he's, he'd be the guy that would know you don't touch dead bodies. 
And he comes straight to Jesus and he says, you need to touch my daughter. The same thing is true for this other woman. She comes and says, if only I could break down the degrees of separation between me and this man. If only I could lay hold of the fringe of his garment. And the text clearly says, she snuck up behind him just to grab his cloak because she's not allowed to touch people. She wouldn't be in normal society. She had to sneak up to find Jesus. And Jesus happily was found. And when she touched that garment, not even him directly, immediately we're told she was made well. Jesus looks, turns to her. Go, your faith has made you well. These women were separated by their Jewish culture that God gave them because of fundamentally of all things, they were separated by death. Either one truly dead or one in the process of dying. And guess what? The second one is all of us. And they are looking for Jesus. And so now you have to say, what exactly is this about the gospel? Why is this the text? Why am I preaching on this and only this? Where is the gospel here? It is called, if you don't mind flipping to the front, it's called the gospel of Matthew. And then you think, well, what is the gospel from what we just read? Is that it? That Jesus just touches people and he doesn't like you to have diseases? And so the gospel is Jesus heals diseases? Or the gospel is Jesus just simply would like to rescue you from death or suffering or pain or isolation? Is that the gospel? See, that prosperity gospel is found on the peripheries of the gospel. And it's partially true that that is the gospel. That God does mean all of those things. But if you stay on those peripheries and never get to the depth of it, it is a pure lie that this is the gospel. That Jesus, as we said, is not just concerned with bleeding. And not even concerned with your death. And he explains why he's not concerned with your death. For what he says to that girl. The simple gospel could be broken down. And I invite you to think of this way. This is a, this is a sidebar. The simple gospel broken down in threes. Three steps of three. It is creation, fall, redemption. This is the gospel. And what's amazing is everything I read, you can't find it in there explicitly. Creation, fall, redemption. There's three. Father, Son, and the Spirit. Three in the first step of creation. The Father providentially made it all. The Word. The Word was spoken. The Word was Jesus. The intelligible information that creates everything. Everything from DNA to computer programming to every bit of information that we have wrapped up in the cells or wrapped up in the atoms is made by the word, the logos, the logic. You cannot crack any part of God's creation open and not see the fingerprints of Jesus in John 1 who is told the word. And in Genesis 1 we are told God spoke the world into existence. And that you and I have intelligible speech as image bearers of him. That's how creation happened. And then in Genesis, the third part is the Spirit hovering to act, to do the work, the powerful work of God in creating the effects of this Word that the Father supernaturally, uh, uh, providentially provened. 
The second of this three is not creation but fall. And of course, the threes inside the three is Genesis 3. So you go in presenting the gospel to someone clearly. How could you present the gospel with a story of a miracle? The second step is fall. Genesis 3. That it is our constant vexation that we want to be God. We want to be God so terribly that the only first sin and the prevenient sin of all sins is to want to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is to be the arbiter of what is right, what is wrong, what is right, what is left. How you can separate things. How you decide to be master of your own life. That is it. That is the sin. You, that is the underlying hardwired presupposition of everybody in the world at all times. Because we've all only been a few degrees removed from the first Adam. And he ate that fruit. And we loved how it tasted. And we, in left in our own condition, would pick the fruit up again tomorrow. He is a good representative of us. A faithful representative. That we want to live our own life. And then the last is redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. A three within a three, and it found in Romans 3, where God brings it all together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a covering, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That is the center of the gospel. Many have said that is the most important verse in the whole of scripture. Is that God would actually have the gospel distilled to this, that he could be the just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That the wicked go free and God remains just because the just die for wickedness. That Jesus dies in our place, God's justice is served, and yet you go free and he remains just and not wicked for letting a sinner like you or I go. Because he is our propitiation. That's pure, simple, clear gospel. Expound that for 15 minutes to a friend on a bus, on a plane, at a park. You've given them the gospel. But here we're in the gospel of Matthew and some woman's not bleeding anymore. How is that the gospel? How does that comport with what I just gave you in Romans 3? What, what is so gospel here? Nothing about sin or condemnation. The first understanding of the gospel is true. That Jesus is about healing. And he is about raising the dead. But the fuller understanding, the full gospel, the deeper question goes back just a few verses to read the gospel in full. Where, remember, they asked just before this, Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gave the unlocking key to take this whole gospel of Matthew and understand why he wrote it this way. Because Jesus answers the question by saying it is not those who are well who need a physician. Physician. It's those who are sick. But they didn't ask Jesus, why are you healing people and raising small children to life and stopping the bleeding of those who are dying? That's what a doctor would do. That's what a physician would do. Their question was, 
Why are you sitting and eating with sinners? And so Jesus explains the whole gospel right there. That all of the disease and all of the death is because of sin. And that sin is the sickness. All of the healing, all of the power, the raising of this young girl. If you look to that alone, you've missed the gospel entirely. He raised the young girl because he is righteous. And he commands death and life. He is the physician who really heals. Because I promise you, the girl's dead now. She rose, lived her full life. She died. Because he's a good doctor. He knows really where the disease is to be had. And so he eats with those who are sinners. So that he might cleanse us of sin. Sin. This older woman has that disease. So even, and here is the beauty of it all. Jesus brings it down to say that even literal death is literal sleep. So the idea of a physician, it's a metaphor. You know, Jesus is like a physician for your soul. Like a pastor is kind of like a spiritual doctor. Well, yeah, those are cute metaphors. Here's this. Here is literal, literal. Jesus says it this way. Their literal death, the literal death of that girl was literal sleep. We're told we're, we're not left to debate about it. At the beginning, the man comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is dead. The mourners are there. Professional mourners, that is. They're playing a flute. They're paid to come and cry. That's what they did in that culture. They might not even have known the girl. But you had, even poor people had to have money aside to pay professional mourners to come for a funeral. So if the mourners think you're dead, you're probably dead because they see a lot of dead people. And they laughed at Jesus because they're like, listen, she's dead. So she's really dead. She's literally dead. And Jesus says her literal death is literal sleep. It's not a symbol. Koyomai is a Greek word that means sleep. And oftentimes through all the scripture, it's used symbolically. It's like as if you were to go to a funeral and say, they're in a better place. And you just say that because you're supposed to say that. Or you say they're sleeping now because that sounds better than saying death. It's euphemistic language. Kathudo is another Greek word for sleep. And it oftentimes means most of the time, literal. Like you're sleeping. Like you're snoring. I can hear your tongue. Jesus used which word? The literal one. She's really, really dead. And he said, no, she's really, really sleeping. Isn't that amazing? If Jesus is life, if Jesus is life, if you're getting the gospel, then you understand now that when he took her hand, her death was nothing more than just sleep. And if death is sleep, then resurrection is nothing more complicated than waking up. John 5, Jesus says, The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
That's more real than any death you will experience. Acts 24, when they're preaching the gospel, they said that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Of everybody is coming back. Daniel 12, prophecy of old. Daniel 12, 2, he says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. That's the wake-up alarm. Every death that's ever had is not real death. It, they're just sleeping. There will be a day where Jesus will not just take one girl's hand and lift her out and say to these mourners, oh, she was just sleeping, you misunderstood. He will say to all of creation that anyone who's ever breathed the breath of life come forth, be alive, and realize that all of that was just a nap to get to an eternal state of a final thing of what God is doing. And then there will be this thing called death. And it will be real, literal death. For our literal death now is only literal. Literal, not poetic, not euphemistic, not trying to make everyone feel better. You're literally just sleeping. You're coming back. And immediately to judgment. And so this girl was literally sleeping. And so for Jesus to just grab her hand and pick her up, and say, Talitha, come, which means little girl, rise. And she rose. This great degree of separation is closed immediately the second Jesus touched her hand. There are many things that separate us, but nothing separates any of us from this whole world except six people. And those who you love, those who are dead, they're just sleeping. There is one hand that touches them and it's all back like that. There is one degree of separation between one handshake of Jesus Christ and it is all back. It's not the difference between you or some Indonesian farmer or between Rome or the Aztecs or even between the great time that separates us throughout the various men and women of history. This first degree of separation is only broken by sin. Sin is the break. And Jesus can actually break that with his hand. This resurrection life comes to us because of Jesus. And so when Jesus grabs her hand, she truly is brought back. And the other woman, to close with this, think of the other woman. Completely different. Where she says, all I have to do is touch him. All Here's the gospel. Oh, it's so beautiful to say, when you look at just these miracles, what this is, why it is the gospel of Matthew. It is not just the reason why maybe you should not be sick right now and then die in a few more months. It is the gospel of Matthew. This woman is coming to Jesus. And she thinks in her mind, I just need to touch his garment. And Jesus lets her do what she wanted to do. She touches his garment. And he turns around and he sees her, it says. He looks at her. And then he said to her, oh, listen to this word. You have to hear this today. He said to her, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Mark says, your faith has saved you. How far are you removed from the historical carpenter 2,000 years ago? 
You don't. And she didn't need to grab his garment. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ now, whether he be five feet from you or 2,000 years from you, you are saved. This is the gospel. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that we can trust right now, that you are here with us. There is no place we can go where you are not. But even when we gather together in your name, Lord, your gracious presence is with us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to close this gap for many of those who are in this room, who are truly not born again, but also, Lord, all of our loved ones, the ones we care for, Lord. We understand this man came to you and you did not turn him away. So, Father, Lord, we pray that you would continue to close this gap and we look forward to that day when you will cause it all to be awoken. And we will praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.